Uh, you can keep your Bibles where they are. Uh, they should be on Daniel chapter 6, verses 19 through 23, the passage that Gina just read for us. That's going to be our text of focus and study this morning. Last Sunday, we looked at uh, Daniel's prosecution, how he was tried, arrested, and cast into the lion's den uh, for breaking the Medo-Persian ordinance that made praying to any god or man other than the king illegal. Remember that crazy ordinance we studied and looked at? Well, he got pinched for not obeying it and for praying to his God, and he was prosecuted, uh, basically, and thrown into the lion's den last week. That's what we studied and focused on. Um, We discovered that Darius, the king, was reluctant to execute Daniel because he respected him and because he figured out that the high officials and satraps, his other leaders, he figured out that they had conspired against Daniel and against the king, in a sense. And so... uh, he had a, a really, really rough night after having to prosecute and, and basically execute Daniel. He just, it didn't sit well with him. He had a really, really hard time with that because it was an injustice and these sorts of things. Um, do you remember Darius's, if you were with us or if you've read the text, Darius's last words to Daniel as he cast him into the den? May your God whom you serve faithfully rescue you. Remember that? It was an interesting thing. Sometimes uh, criminals or people who are on death row or about to be executed are offered an opportunity to say some last words. And uh, Daniel said nothing through the whole process, which astonishes me because I would have been crying like a baby. But the king actually gave some last words, and it was that his hope was that if Daniel's God exists, as he suspected, that he would hopefully rescue him. And Darius... Uh, had heard about Daniel's God, uh, which he actually nicknamed the living God. And I say this because in Medo-Persia, there were, you know, you had a whole pantheon of gods. You had a god for this and a god for that. Think of Egypt. They had gods for everything. The Romans and the Greeks had gods for everything. And uh, so somehow, I don't think Darius is a believer at this point in the text. I think he became one, but he had heard about Daniel's God and he gave him uh, the nickname, the living God. But I'm not convinced at this point yet in the narrative that he had been converted and truly believed. And Darius' statement in verse 16 was like a challenge. Um, You know, if Daniel's God showed up and rescued him, uh, Darius would not only believe in the living God, but exalt him above all others. And we see that take place a little later in the narrative. Now, that's pretty much where we left off. The king was stressed. He put him in the lion's den. He had a sleepless night, and that's where we pick up. So I think it's befitting for us to pray before we kind of enter back into the storyline. And uh, I'm really, really excited about this particular text. Uh, One of the things that we've been doing each week is paralleling the storyline, the narrative, and Daniel's example to that of Jesus, uh, because Jesus is the point to all Scripture. And we've seen at the end of every sermon how Daniel's example in this text points to Jesus. There are so many parallels in this particular section in just this handful of verses that I'm not going to wait till the end of the sermon to to build that bridge. I'm going to be kind of identifying Jesus in the text as we go. But I'm really excited about the connections to Jesus. And anytime that uh, I'm in the Old Testament and I, I see Jesus there in example, 
types and shadows is what the theologians call it. I just, I get really pumped because Jesus is, he's it, man. He's the reason, right? He, he's, the, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. I mean, it, it, it's all about him. So we're going to see some really amazing parallels to him as we go. But I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we just give you this time and commend it and commit it to you. Uh, we pray that, uh, that you would teach us this morning and not just head knowledge or heart knowledge or any of that, but you would take the Holy Spirit, your spirit, send him in power that he would come and take the word and apply it and transform us. There might be some in this room who have yet to come to know you in a saving way. I pray that that would take place. That's a work that only you can do. There are some in this room that do know Jesus, that love Jesus, and I pray that you would make us more like Jesus. Sanctify us during this time. And I think most importantly, our heart cry is that you would be glorified and honored and praised through everything that we do here, especially the preaching of the word. Um, I pray against any notion of, of anyone ascribing anything to me in this. Well, he can speak well and he can... No. Jesus, you are our pastor. You are our preacher here. And so um, I want to get out of the way and, and, and I want the eyes of those here and the ears of those here to be tuned to you and that you would receive all the praise and glory. And so teach us today, Lord. We sit at your feet humbly, acknowledging your sovereignty, your kingship, and our feeble and humble state. And uh, have your way with us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to pick it up at 19. We heard it earlier. 19, verse 19. So again, the context, Daniel has been tried, arrested, prosecuted, thrown into the den. It's basically the next day, okay? And it tells us that right there in 19, then at break of day, the king, speaking of Darius, arose and went in haste to the den of lions. So early in the morning, as the sun began to rise, the sleep deprived, probably hungry, because remember what we read last week, he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat or any of that, the sleep and and and. Uh, food-deprived king arose from his bed. I don't think he was sleeping, obviously. I think he was laying there all night, probably staring at the ceiling. How many of us have, have, have done that when we're filled with anxiety and anxiousness? Are you kidding me? I do it probably twice a week. Uh, oh, f- feeble man of faith here. Uh, so he gets up out of bed or out of, his seating, uh, out of his sitting chair, whatever. He gets up and he goes right over to the lion's den to check on Daniel. And it says there, I mean, there's all these little details and nuance. It says he went in haste. What does it mean to go in haste? It means to go quickly. So it, I don't think that in those days, kings or in any era, kings run anywhere, right? Kings don't usually go to places in haste. Uh, they're usually carted around and glorified and all of this stuff. And let me tell you, this guy had it all. His kingdom was greater than that of Nebuchadnezzar, whom he just conquered. And so I think it's bizarre and interesting that somebody at this level that makes basically a modern-day president look like nothing with this kind of wealth and power and military might and all of that and glory, this guy gets up out of bed and runs and takes off, goes in haste to the den to see a condemned man, to see if he's still alive. It's astonishing. So he goes... Quickly, And what does that tell us? 
What does it show us? It shows us that he was hoping that the legend about Daniel's God was true, that Daniel's God, whom he had heard about and called the living God, actually possessed the power and the ability to intervene and rescue his people from peril. That's what the king was hoping for. Because remember, who are his gods? What were their capabilities? They were idols carved of stone and wood. They couldn't do anything but sit there and look like a totem pole. They did nothing. They had no power. They weren't real. They were figments of their imagination. They were the constructions of mortal man. And so he's hoping that maybe this God, maybe this God, the one whom I've heard of, is actually real. And I'll tell you what, he was thinking if Daniel is alive, he must be real. He must be. And so he runs down there and he wants to find out for himself. And I'll tell you, he wasn't sure what to expect. We know that because of the question that he asks in a moment. He's not quite a man of faith. He wasn't believing in his heart that this God was real or true or that this God had actually done something. But he was kind of hoping that he had. And I would say that no one, apart from the Holy Spirit or apart from being saved, actually hopes anything in the God. In fact, we're all running from God at that point. But I believe the Holy Spirit was working here in his life already and drawing him. And I think that's the right way to look at this. But he was hoping and he was running over there, but he wasn't sure if Daniel was dead or alive. Bon Jovi comes to mind. I think he was hoping that a miracle had taken place and that he would find Daniel alive. Now look at what Darius did when he got to the lion's den. Look at verse 20. It says, As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, this is what he yells out, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion's? As Darius drew near to the lion's den, he began to call out for Daniel. Daniel, are you alive? Has your God, the living God, whom you serve every day, has he been able to rescue you from the lions? If so, say something, answer me, respond to me. That's my paraphrase. I love how it says, as he came near. He didn't wait to get to the mouth of the den or where the stone was over the portal where they dropped food into the lions. He's hollering as he's running. He starts yelling for Daniel before he even gets there. He wasn't even at the den, and he's already calling out to see if Daniel will answer. And I'll tell you what, there is desperation in his voice. There is desperation in his words. He's hoping, he's hoping, he's hoping. Now look at 21, verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Daniel replied to the king, answered him, and replied with the typical standard issue kingly greeting, O king, live forever. This is what you said to kings back in those days. And I'll tell you what, these must have been the sweetest, most encouraging, even mind-blowing words Darius had ever heard. It was almost a call unto salvation in a sense. When Daniel responds, he's like, yes, Yes, this, this must have just blown his mind because he wasn't sure what to expect. Don't read into the text that he just knew that Daniel was going to respond. He did not know. And I'll tell you what, when those words rang out and hit his eardrums and went into there and processed, he was thinking, oh, yes, 
his most trusted and valued servant, Daniel, was alive. Okay? It, it was a dagger blow to this guy to lose Daniel in the first place. He couldn't stand the fact that he uh, was going to be thrown to the lions and that he had to go through with that. But he was also happy, if you will, or excited about the fact that the legend was true. This living God has done something here that none of my gods could ever do. I mean, you could throw Daniel in and set a bunch of idols up around the mouth of the cave. Nothing's going to happen. You could throw him down in there. The lions would just turn him into beds. The God whom Daniel served continually, the one whom Darius called the living God, was truly alive. This truly was the living God. And he was truly real at this point. Now, he was truly sovereign. He was truly all-powerful, omnipotent. Also, Daniel's response brought a sigh of relief to Darius, not in that he's like this big seeker hoping that God is real, because I truly believe nobody really seeks unless the Holy Spirit's there, but it's more than just, okay, I hope your God's real. It's more than that. In, in his mind, prosecuting and executing Daniel was an unjust act because the ordinance that caused this and the case itself was based on dishonesty and a deception. Okay, you got to understand something about Darius. If you look at the annals of history, if you even study Scripture, and he's mentioned in other places, he was a just man. Even for being a pagan king, he was a, he was a pretty honest king. He was a pretty fair king. And, and, and Cyrus, his, his contemporary, was also a just king. I'm not, I'm not saying they were necessarily believers or anything like that, but in terms of just being good men, these guys were good men. Of course, Scripture says no men are good, but we would say, okay, if a guy's pretty honest and he, and he works hard and he treats people fairly and blah, 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 we would say that's a good man. If he has integrity, if he has high character, okay, we would say that's a good man. find it hard to believe that there are people out there apart from Jesus that have any qualities. I know I was one for 30 years. But in just worldly terms, I guess, if you will, or just human terms, Darius was a just man. He was an honest man. And we must understand that he had been deceived and then forced to commit an injustice against Daniel. And that is one of the reasons why he didn't eat or sleep the day before. You see, Darius was a just man. He was an honest man. And he realized that night or right when he found out that you know, Daniel had broken this law that he thought was a good idea, he realized, I have been duped by my own leadership, by the people that I appointed to leadership. And this is, this is, a, this is a stain on my integrity and on my character. He didn't like this at all, the way that it went down. And, and I think that when Daniel spoke, he was relieved. He was relieved. It, it soothed, if you will, it soothed Darius's tormented conscience because he realized that the living God, not only was he real, but that he had done what he could not do. The living God overcame the deceptive ordinance that Darius had signed into law. And the living God had rescued the man that he had unjustly condemned to death. Darius may have felt at this point that, that the living God had done him an enormous favor by rewriting his wrong and by redeeming the entire situation. Do you know why our God is referred to as a redeemer? It's not only because he redeems people and saves people and, you know, and 
and saves them from hell and all of these things, but He is the God who, who, who makes beauty come from ashes. He is a redeemer. He is a holistic redeemer. He redeems all things. In the end, He will redeem all of creation, and all of creation will glorify Him the way that it was intended to do. But He is a redeeming God. He redeems situations. Even now, as Pastor Phil makes stupid and foolish decisions, I do at times. I make stupid decisions. My God redeems those decisions at times for me out of pure mercy and grace. He redeems things for us. Not just forgives. Being forgiven is incredible. But for God to rewrite our wrongs and for God to rewrite the wrongs that are committed against us, hallelujah. He is a redeeming God. And him saving Daniel and rescuing Daniel here is incredible. But him even showing mercy and grace to someone like Darius and redeeming the situation for him is doubly incredible. He is the God of all grace. He is the Redeemer. In verse 22, Daniel describes how he survived. He describes his rescue. Look at it with me, 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. <laughs> and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now what does the the first part of verse 22 remind us of? Well, if you've read the book of Daniel or you were with us uh, over the last several months as we studied this fabulous book, it reminds us of chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. Remember the fiery furnace? Remember the fourth man who appeared in the fiery furnace and rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's BFFs? Who was the fourth man? King Nebuchadnezzar said he looked like what? A son of the gods. And in Aramaic, that translates as angel. God sent an angel into the fiery furnace to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we learned, we discovered that it wasn't just any angel. It was the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Christ before His incarnation, before He came to earth and took human form, that is a, a Christophany. We see a Christophany in chapter 3, a pre-incarnate visit from Christ. He is the angel of the Lord. See, all through the Old Testament, God was telling people, I'm going to send my son. Here's an example, the angel of the Lord. Here's an example, Daniel's like Jesus. Here's an example, he's been sending. Moses was a deliverer in a sense. Here's examples. I'm just setting the stage for what I'm going to do later on. Is that what happened in our text? Which angel did God send to rescue Daniel? If God sent the angel of the Lord to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, it is very possible that He sent Him to rescue Daniel in the lion's den. Do we have a Christophany playing out here in chapter 6? Maybe. How did the angel 
and I believe it was the angel of the Lord. How did he rescue Daniel? What did he do? The text says he shut the lion's mouths. What would we call that? Muzzling? Do you have a rambunctious animal that you've had to muzzle? A crazy cat? I don't even know if you can muzzle a cat. I just throw them out in the street and never mind. That's a mean, that's a mean joke to cat people. I'm sorry. I'm a cat person. I can't have him in the house because this guy explodes. He's got terrible allergies. You can't say much. You have like 90 cats at your house. I've been there. You know, you're sitting there eating your dinner and right in your face. I like cats. Don't get me wrong. But I, you muzzle an animal, right? You, you muzzle. Usually you see muzzles on dogs. Uh, my neighbor recently got a very, very hyper rambunctious pit bull, and uh, he nips at people like I was trying to pet him. He's like, and I was like, okay, never mind, you know, (laughs) pulled back a stump. And uh, he has a little boy that the dog, you know, he's very energetic, and he plows the little boy over, and he's been nipping at the boy, and so he figured, okay, what I'm going to do, and this dog's over a year old now. It's kind of hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And so, you know, he begins to muzzle the dog, and now the dog can't nip at people or bite at people or anything like that. He's still crazy and running all over. Um, And the dog is no longer there because it was just a bad choice for their family. But anyways, beyond that, the muzzle on the dog stopped him from nipping and biting and, and these sorts of things. Now, these lions were hungry and aggressive. I told you several weeks ago that they deliberately kept these lions hungry. That way, when they threw somebody in there, it was like an explosion of flesh and hair and screaming. You know, it was more entertaining, if you will, uh, to see people executed in that way. It's pretty disgusting. These animals were very hungry and very aggressive, but they lacked, because of this angel and this supernatural power, they lacked the ability to open their mouths and bite. So what they probably did was just laid there and stared at Daniel the whole time, hoping that something would change so they could get on him. Maybe they were just sitting there purring. Who knows? Do lions purr? I don't know what they do. Do they? I'm not going to try it to find out. But I don't know. But they couldn't, they couldn't bite. They couldn't, they couldn't even attack. You would think that a lion would probably still attack. They still have claws and all that. But they did nothing like that. They just basically sat there, I guess, and stared at the guy. It might have been like this. They're like, we can't do anything about it. You ever been in a situation where you can't do something about it? I think the lions felt that way. He's staring at Jesus up there. They're staring at him, hoping that their mouths are loosed. I think that might have been kind of what it looked like. And the the image of Daniel's accurate because he was like darn near 90 years old at this point, 80-something years old. And we must understand that believers have been rescued by the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ? And what does he do? What is is part of his ongoing ministry to his people? He protects us against our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like what? A roaring lion. You see the parallels? He shuts the devil's mouth when he hurls his accusations against us. It says in Scripture, he comes before the throne of God and makes all of these slanderous accusations and things against us. And guess what? Our great lion tamer... Silence! Shuts him down. One day he will cast the devil, that roaring lion, that beast, he will cast him into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. 
I like what Gordon Rumble once said. He's a pastor over at Big Valley, a friend of mine, Bruce's best friend for life. And he came here and preached, I don't know, a couple of months ago or whatever. It was a while ago. Maybe it was over at our old building. But he said something that struck me. He said, Jesus has removed the lions or the, the lions, literally, the devil's teeth. You know, it's like at the cross, the teeth of the devil were removed. And I really like that. And what it means to me, the way that I read into that or what I draw from that is that the devil's attacks against the Lord's people are not lethal. They're not lethal. I, I, don't get me wrong. I think they're pretty lethal against unbelievers. I think he still has teeth and everything else, full weaponry. But when it comes to the Lord's people, in a sense, the Lord has muzzled him in a sense. He has removed his teeth so that his bite is not fatal. It is not lethal. I think that's what Gordon Rumble was implying, and I think that you can draw from Scripture examples that would kind of show that. And I would say that that doesn't mean that the devil is not permitted to gnaw on us, that he's not permitted to gum us a little bit, right? Right? But he cannot gnash us up and swallow us. Go read Job 2.6. You can do anything you want to him, but you can't kill him. That's what, that's what God told the devil when he wanted to destroy Job. Another thing to note here is that the lion's den in general here, this lion's den, this real place that existed where Daniel had been thrown in, these lions were in there, this place, the lion's den, it does represent, in a sense, the place of God's judgment. Daniel 6 points to Revelation 20, which speaks of the great white throne judgment. That is the final judgment that will take place, and it's going to be a, a terrifying event. And yet, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, His burial, Jesus' resurrection rescues believers, right? The person and work of Jesus rescues believers from the lion's den, a.k.a. the great white throne judgment. There's another wonderful parallel there. Now let me ask you this, how are we to understand Daniel's comment about being blameless? He seems to attribute his blamelessness to his rescue. Is that how it played out? Is that what he intends for us to get? Well, it's because of this, God did this for me. That sounds like works. Is that what he meant? No, I think what this is, is this was his way of saying that he was innocent from the get-go. Because he was. He hadn't done anything wrong. It was the satraps and the high officials that did something wrong. This was his way. When he said, I was blameless, this was his way of saying, I, I was innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. And, and the rescue that I experienced, God sending the angel, my God, the living God sending the angel, my rescue was God's way of affirming my innocence or God's way of vindicating me. God wanted Darius to see Daniel's rescue as a, as a kind of rebuke for attempting to put an innocent man, more particularly God's man, to death. That's the way that we should read his statement. That's what he means by blameless. I was innocent. God overcame your verdict because I was innocent. You shouldn't have done what you did. And my God has intervened and stopped it. That's a rebuke to Darius. That's a shattering of all his power and ability and strength and might. That he can't even put someone to who's worthy of death because he broke the law. He can't even put him to death because God intervenes and says, no, 
pretty amazing. But I think we have to be careful here. Uh, we don't want to see Daniel's blamelessness as the reason why God saved him, if you will. Or God does not base our spiritual, because there are different types of rescue. There's spiritual, there's physical. God does not base our spiritual rescue upon our blamelessness. Okay, it's not like people are walking around and they're really kind of innocent and then God says, I'm going to save them because they're better than these others. That's not the way it works. Just ask yourself, were you blameless when God sent His Holy Spirit to come and invade your life and to regenerate you and make you new and, and, and rescue you? Were you blameless when that took place? Heavens no. You know what you were? You know what I was? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. No one is blameless. No natural person, that is. No one who is still in their sin. Was Saul of Tarsus blameless? You know, he became Paul, right? He was renamed later on when he became a believer. Was Saul of Tarsus blameless when, when Jesus rescued him on the Damascus road? No, he was breathing out threats against the Lord and against the Lord's people. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? He was persecuting Christians. That doesn't sound like someone who's blameless. That's someone who's fighting God. You can't fight God and be blameless. Was Matthew blameless when Jesus told Matthew, drop what you're doing and follow me? No, he was absolutely deplorable. He was a Jew who collected taxes for the enemy, for enemy Rome, and basically robbed his own people. Does that sound like a blameless person? No. God never bases spiritual rescue upon what people do or their perceived status. If that were the case, no one would ever be rescued. Why? Because Scripture clearly teaches that no one is righteous, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one is good. No one. If, if God based our rescue, our salvation upon our merits, we would never be saved because our merits at their pinnacle are but filthy rags before the Lord. So, and I say this because there are countless people who profess Christ who think they've earned their salvation. They even believe that because they prayed some kind of prayer, they're okay. It's not based on some kind of prayer that you made. I made that prayer 20, 30 times before I actually got saved, and I was never saved. A prayer is not going to save you. If you believe as you're praying that prayer, then that's different. But most people that pray it are struck emotionally at some kind of event, and, they, they feel, and their friends elbowing them, go forward, Jim, go forward, Jim, okay. Uh, and they go up there and do the thing, and they sign the card, and I'm okay now! And then they go right back to licentious living, lascivious living, or whatever, and there's no change, they're not any different. Come on, man, really? There are other countless people who claim Christ, who really believe they're earning their way with God. You know, somehow God's going to pull out the scales, and here's my good, here's my bad. I know my, my good is going to be heavier because I do all these great things. I go to church regularly, I tithe, I do all this stuff, and they're playing the whole game and all that, and really all they're doing is treating God like a magic genie, and because of all the great stuff I'm doing, He's going to show me favor, He's going to save me, He's going to do all this stuff, and what they fail to realize, both camps, I prayed this prayer, or I'm doing a lot of good stuff, what they fail to realize, what they fail to understand is that is a false gospel.
because the gospel is all God, all grace, all his mercy, all his love, all his power. It's one-way love, one-way grace, one-way mercy. By the time we're responding to him positively, he's already saved us. Because if he doesn't flip the switch, if he doesn't send the Spirit to perform a supernatural miracle, if he does not send the angel to Daniel, Daniel dies. If he did not send his son, we die. You get it? It's him doing it. It's so important that we, that we understand this because if we don't, we are going to live crazy, I'm trying to earn it lives with God. We're never going to have joy. We're going to be in total and absolute misery because we fail so much. I would rather be an unsaved person than to be a person trying to earn my way with God because an unsaved person, I'll just do whatever the heck I want. I don't care. But if I'm trying to earn my way, that is misery. Absolute misery. I can't be righteous or religious enough no matter how hard I try. It's all God. It's all grace. Spiritual rescue is always based on God's love based on His mercy, based on grace, and it is based on His sovereign will. God has ordained for things to happen, even your salvation, and it's going to happen. No one, Jesus said, will be lost, not one. I will lose none that the Father has given to me. You need to believe that. If you're in Christ, nothing will ever take you out of Christ. And the people around you, you're hoping and praying that they get saved. That's a good thing, and you keep doing that. Because you know what? Just because God has done things a certain way, He has also ordained the means by which these things happen. And that's the proclamation of the gospel and all of the stuff that He's put in there. No one gets saved apart from the mechanism that God has ordained along with the result. You just keep doing what you're doing. I had a gal last night I was talking to. I DJed a wedding last night, and this gal said... Somebody got so mad at me. A parent got so mad at me. She does kids or junior high ministry or something like that. A parent got so mad at me because she said... I blocked and messed up her kid's ability to get saved. I screwed it up with things that I said. I said, so you're the Messiah. She's like, huh? You're the Messiah, right? Should I bow now? Or That's making me really awkward, Phil. I know you're a really nice guy, but that's weird. I said, that's what you sound like. So it's up to you if people get saved. No, you can't stop what God's going to do. You just, if you've said things that are stupid, then you apologize. You try to reconcile that situation, and you keep proclaiming the gospel to everyone, and you trust the results in God's hands because only He can do this stuff. And He will work through you and use you for His glory. But don't you ever, ever think that people get saved or don't get saved because of you. That is a burden that you are not intended to carry, and it is a false gospel. Now, we also need to, to be cautious here in that we should not see blamelessness as a recipe for physical rescue. Okay, we certainly don't want to see blamelessness as, as, as a means to spiritual rescue because that's not true. It's all God, all grace. But we also need to be careful when we think of blamelessness and physical rescue because the text it does not imply it at all, but it seems like, I mean, I guess it does in a way, but that's not what Daniel's saying. I got, say, I, got, I got rescued physically because I was blameless. That's not what he's intending to say here. But some of us would think that's what he's saying. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of prosperity preachers out there that preach that kind of stuff. 
that, you know, if you do this or if you believe hard enough or if you do X, Y, and Z, then God's going to deliver you and God's going to do this and God's going to do that. And and that's what they preach. And so they're basing everything upon what you do. And I just want you to ponder, I've already mentioned the book, I want you to ponder Job for a moment. He was, what does it say in the very, very first chapter one, just the first couple of lines, he was upright and he was blameless. What did his blamelessness bring? Rescue? (laughs) Or the opposite? Did his blamelessness not bring testing and unimaginable suffering? The loss of your entire, his entire family, everyone. The the loss of his entire life livestock, right? The the bandits, the raiders came in and took everything. The loss of his property, the loss of his health. The man was covered in boils from head to toe. Probably couldn't leave the house. I don't even think he had a house because the roof fell in. And then, and then, and then because of his blamelessness, he had a, a bunch of friends that came over and kept trying to pigeonhole him and pin him down on whatever sin he had committed. And that's why this stuff happened. Oh, no, no. If we look at the example of, of, of Job, His blamelessness didn't bring rescue. It brought the opposite. And sometimes your blamelessness will bring the opposite of what you desire. In this world that hates Jesus and hates Christians, when you live righteous and live for God and and you're blameless before the Lord, you're trusting in Him and you're watching your life and and your, your doctrine and your life carefully and you're treating people the way that you should like Christ and all that, and you're blameless in a sense before God and man, the world is going to hate you even more. It's going to put it on you. No, Job's blamelessness, we would say, was counterproductive, but it wasn't because it was in accordance with God's design and plan to shame and silence the devil. Have you thought of my servant Job, upright and blameless? You can do anything to him you want. He doesn't love me because I've built a hedge around him. He loves me because he loves me, because he understands my grace. Put it on him. You can do anything to him but kill him. And who was, who was rewarded at the end of that scenario? Job was. He got out of it more than he had before. He got back double, triple over what he lost. Not more wives, but, he, you know, that could be dramatic. He got back everything, but most importantly, not so much as that he got back what he lost, but that the devil was shamed. See, the devil didn't understand the gospel, did he? He didn't understand it. In our scenario right here in our text, man willed to end Daniel's life. Did you hear me? Man, Darius, The high officials and the satraps, man, they represent man. Man willed to end Daniel's life, but God willed for Daniel to live a certain amount of years, and nothing could change that. Nothing. Trying to end Daniel's life before the Lord's appointed time was an exercise in futility. Literally. No saint will pass away before his or her time is due. Daniel's 
preservation was God's way of saying, you're not in control, Darius, I am. Your plans are your plans, they're not my plans, and your plans cannot overcome or bypass my plans. That's what's being communicated here through this rescue. I love what this commentator wrote. He said, the believer is always safe in God's hands. The path of duty is also the path of safety. A man who is in the will of God is immortal until his work is completed. Amen! It doesn't matter what the enemy brings. God has ordained things to be the way that they are. And and no one is going to take you out until God's appointed time. It's not going to happen. We see that in this text. It's amazing. We're going to kill him. He broke this law. Whatever. God's like, no, you're not going to kill him. I'm going to continue to exalt him. And look at our last verse, 23. I need a drink. It sounded like I was bellying up to the bar right there, didn't I? I need a drink. It's coffee. No schnapps. It's cold, too. Cold coffee's better than no coffee. No, it isn't. (laughs) Hey. 23, look at it with me. This is our last verse. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. What a, what a beautiful verse. Darius was exceedingly glad, exuberant, that Daniel had been rescued and was alive. He called for the executioners or some servants, whoever, his guards, someone who was present to, to bring him out of the den. And, and I want you to notice the phrasing there. It says, taken up out of the den. After Daniel satisfied the demands of Medo-Persian law or paid the price for breaking it, he was brought out of the den and set free. And this amazing little text and phrase, taken up out of the den, and the whole thing, the rescue and everything, it too is intended to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfied the demands of God's law through perfect obedience. You and I can't obey God's law perfectly. We do well on Tuesday and Thursday we blow it. We we just can't do it. We don't have it within us. Even when we have the Holy Spirit, we're saved. It's still very hard because we have the flesh. We have basically a toothless adversary, but he still messes with us. I mean, it's just impossible, right? We cannot obey the law. No one can obey God's law perfectly because it has... More, it has to do with not only not physically breaking these laws, but even thinking things and breaking them in our heart. It's impossible, yet Jesus satisfied the demands of God's law in a similar way that Daniel did because he had broken a law. Jesus satisfied the demands of God's law through his perfect obedience. He has a perfect record as a man. When he came to earth, he's 100% God, 100% man. But as man, he, he lived in total and absolute obedience to God's law. He never breached any of God's laws, not in his mind, not in his heart, not physically. He did none of that. He, perfect obedience. So he satisfied the demands of God's law. He fulfills, if you will, the law. 
And not only that, but He paid the price for our sins or our breaches, because that's what a sin is, it's a breach. And it's even the lack of faith, but it's our breaches of God's law. Jesus paid the price for our breaches of God's law through His bloody sacrificial death at the cross. Of course, He was laid in a tomb, and on the third day He was resurrected, taken up out of the tomb. See the parallel? Man, this verse right here points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the early church used to parallel the resurrection of Jesus with this exact verse. It did it all the time. And what was the resurrection? What was it? What did it represent? Our justification, absolutely. But what did it represent in the broader sense? It was the Father's way of saying, not only to Christ, but to all creation, I am satisfied with my Son's work. I receive my Son's work. And it was His way of saying what Christ said on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The resurrection was the Father's, and think of it like this, His stamp of approval. Pretty amazing. That's the parallel here. Daniel is is vindicated. He pays the price for breaking Medo-Persian law. He does what, you know, he does what the law said he shouldn't do. And he pays the price and he's rescued and he comes up out of it. And in the same way, Jesus pays the price for our breaches. And then God vindicates him by raising him from the grave. He comes out of the tomb in a similar way that Daniel comes out of the den. That's the parallel. It's amazing. When Daniel was brought out of the den. They, they stood him up and, and they looked him over front to back. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared in the upper room before his disciples, they looked him over. And you had Thomas, doubting Thomas there, right? One of his disciples. And, and Jesus showed him the holes. They look him over and then, oh, I don't know if it's really you. And then he shows him the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. And Thomas declares, my God and my my Lord and my God, they look him over, they look over Daniel, they look over Jesus. And with Daniel, there were no scratches, no bite marks. He was completely unaffected, completely unharmed. What does that remind us of? Again, over in chapter 3, verse 27, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought out of the fiery furnace, it says the hair of their heads was not singed. How do you go into a furnace that's like 1,800 degrees blazing and still have hair, still have eyebrows, still alive, still have flesh? You'd be like the rotisserie chicken I made the other night in my, my smoker, and it only gets up to like 350. You'd be done. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their, their, that was weird that I said that. Their cloaks were not, people are like, that sounds really good for lunch. Their cloaks were not harmed, and, and the smell of fire had not come upon them. What do we learn when we studied that amazing text, 327, back months ago, that Meshach or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their rescue was comprehensive. They had not been impacted by the judgment that Nebuchadnezzar put on them by that execution attempted. And we see the same thing here with Daniel. He is completely unaffected by that execution. He is not scratched. He is not bitten. He, he's not missing anything. And we must understand that our rescue is also comprehensive. The Lord Jesus rescues 
the whole person. He rescues us spiritually and He rescues us physically. Right now we are experiencing, if you're in Christ, you are experiencing spiritual rescue. And it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing, right? The joy we have, the hope we have, the new identity that we have. We don't have to go chase and try to nail down some kind of a thing so you know this is who i am i want to be this and i want to be that that's the trouble with the world today right lost people are searching for identity they look for it in transgenderism and all of these things and what they don't understand is that they're image bearers even though they're marred just as all image bearers are but they bear the image of their creator and in christ they become a full image bearer the, the true identity is made manifest and that longing to be seen and known as someone is finally quenched. I'm a, I'm a person of the Lord. I'm, I'm a Christian. It's okay to say that. I'm a Christian. We're experiencing spiritual rescue right now because we're here and alive. One day, we will experience the whole package. NGB, right? New glorified bodies. Do you know that your salvation isn't complete until you received a glorified body at the resurrection? There's a transition period there where you are not on this earth and it says in Scripture that you go to be with the Lord. Your soul, your spirit goes to be with the Lord until He returns or until the resurrection. And then, and then you receive that new body. And at that point, the physical rescue is complete. It is complete in a sense at death because we don't have these bodies anymore. Our souls are liberated from this fleshly, these tents, if you will. But the full manifestation of physical rescue happens at the resurrection. And I just have one thing to say to that. Hallelujah. Aren't you ready to stop playing the weight loss game, the cancer game, the sickness game? I am. I have to wear these glasses. If I take them off, I can't see. I can't wait to have perfect vision. It's going to be really cool because it really stinks. You get a little older, I need like a size 40 font now. Even on this paper, it's really huge. I used to make fun of people that had that. Rick Thompson's a pastor over at Big Valley. When I pastored there with him, he had this Bible, and it was like his text was so big, he had like one letter on each page. You had to go to read a verse. I mean, it was like P. You know, it was so big and massive. And, and I was like, ha, ha, what a dork. I'm that guy now. <laughs> Every year, in two or three years, these things are going to be Coke bottles. You know, I'm going to be like, hey, okay, everyone, take your Bibles. You know, that guy, the Urkel. And I just say hallelujah to the fact that we've been spiritually rescued and physical rescue is coming, right? Now, I want you to notice the last phrase says, and speaking of Daniel, because he had trusted in his God, faith was a factor in his rescue. You can at some point read Hebrews 11.33. It was a facet in his rescue. Daniel believed, and here's really what Daniel was believing. Was Daniel just latched to the idea that God will rescue me from these lions? No, not necessarily. He had more of a whole view of God's rescue. What Daniel believed was that his soul was well protected, and that is why he did not fear death. He knew that if God rescued him from the lions, he would continue to live and serve God. His soul was safe. Even his physical body was safe. But if God chose to go ahead, I'm going to end your life, he knew that he would go and be in the presence of the Lord. He knew his soul was safe either way. 
He knew that God would deliver him either way, right? In life or in death. The fact of the matter is, faith is a factor in our rescue. If we do not believe the gospel, we will not be rescued by the gospel. If we do not believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we shall not be rescued by the person and work of Jesus Christ. No one is saved apart from the gospel, not even the Old Testament saints. They were hoping in the Messiah to come. They were hoping in Jesus to come. The gospel is essential. Faith is essential. We will experience no rescue, whether it be spiritual or physical, if we do not have faith. It says in Scripture, apart from faith, it is impossible to do what? Please God. The ultimate sin really is no faith. That is really the definition of sin. Everyone thinks, well, it's just breaking God's law. That's true. But it's also not believing in the one whom God has sent. That would be that cardinal, unforgivable sin. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit who is the revealer. We must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives will begin to look differently. Faith without works or faith without deeds or faith without action, James 2.17 says, is dead. What did Martin Luther say? I quote him all the time. We are saved by faith alone, no doubt. But the faith that saves is never alone. Right? What does that mean? It means if you believe, if it's real, your life will begin to look like Jesus. You will despise sin, and you should despise your own more than others. Isn't that a challenge? We look around at everyone, oh my gosh, look at what they're doing. Meanwhile, I'm okay. No, true saving faith, there's a conviction here first, and then you begin to address others and love them and try to preach the gospel. But I, I, here's the scary thing. The devil dupes us into believing we have this flesh that sin is okay because we have grace. That's not, that's not the nature of someone who has truly been saved because they hate sin. Do you hate your sin? I hate mine. Actually, I have to be honest with you. I love it. And that's why I keep getting into it. And then after I love it for a little while and feel its sting and look at the consequences and look at the impact that it has on others and even the despair that it brings, then I begin to loathe it. True saving faith, all of that will be packed into that. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Closing questions. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do we have faith? Are we like Daniel? Or are we like Darius? I hope we're like Daniel. He believed in Jesus. He had faith. I hope we believe in Jesus. I hope we have faith. I can't make you have faith. It is a gift. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring that gift to everyone in this church. Maybe He has. To everyone I cross paths with. And I know that no one will be lost. Just think about it. Apart from Jesus, there is 
No rescue from the judgment of God. No rescue from the lion's dead. No rescue from the den. No rescue from the pit of despair, hopelessness, the things that we experience in this life. There's no, there's no rescue. But if we are in Jesus Christ, if we are in the gospel, if you will, by grace, through faith, we have absolutely nothing to fear because we know that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. This truth, this reality, should transform the way we think and live. It should transform the way we respond to difficult situations and adversity. It should make us brave and bold like Daniel. Our world is crumbling around us, right? But the people of God shall not crumble with it. If we keep our eyes fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith on Jesus and upon the promises of God and on heaven, we will not, listen, we will not only endure the trials and tribulations of life, but flourish in the midst of them. Did you hear me? Where are your eyes fixed today? On your problems, on your troubles, on your tribulation? or on the one who redeems all things? Where are they? 